This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning. Hi. Welcome to the Resolution Foundation. Uh, my name is David Willits, President of the Foundation. And I'm delighted that today we're having a discussion on intergenerational issues, particularly how the public views generational matters. And we've got some fascinating new research from Nuffield College, Oxford, with whom we have a research partnership on attitudes uh, to intergenerational issues. And this is a fascinating and fantastic product from that. So first, we're going to hear from Zach Grant, who is a research fellow at Nuffield College, Oxford, who will present the findings. And then we'll have comments from Professor Jane Green from Nuffield, Professor of Political Science, Rachel Cunliffe of The New Statesman, who's written a lot about the, the politics of all this, and our very own Sophie Hale, Principal Economist here at Resolution in our Intergenerational Centre. Uh, and do, if you're participating online, do use Slido to put in your questions and, of course, upvote the questions that most strike you. It'll help us identify the key issues to put. We'll do a poll as well. We'll also have an opportunity for questions from our live audience here at Resolution Foundation. Now, to set the ball rolling, Zach, why don't you present your findings? So thank you, David, for that lovely introduction. And thank you all for coming so early in the morning. This report marks the culmination of about a year or so's research by myself, my co-author Jane and, our, and Jeff Evans at Nuffield College and our partners at the Resolution Foundation. And we've been researching the answer to one very big, important question for the future of our country in the next decade. And that is this. When it comes to politics, are generations selfish? Do voters, in particular age groups, only ever want government to invest in themselves? Or do they care about the well-being of those at other stages of the life cycle and are they prepared to support parties and policies willing to invest in other age groups? We were inspired to ask this question, of course, by observing the recent age polarisation in British elections, but in particular, a narrative that has emerged that a lot of this age polarisation is really about competing economic interests, and each age group is gravitating towards the party that seems to be most willing to spend more money on themselves relative to others. In particular, online and in sections of the media, it all has almost become conventional wisdom that all the Conservatives need to do to win the support of older voters is keep up investment in the triple lock, keep up investment in older voters, and this group will continue to support them regardless of how much or how little they invest elsewhere. This sort of intergenerational warfare framing is quite common, but is it true? To find out, we designed and implemented an original survey and looked at the attitudes of around 6,000 people towards government investment in different types of spending proposals. We want to know, do people in different age groups support investment in others? As a spoiler, we found out that there was actually a lot more intergenerational altruism than selfishness. And actually large numbers of older voters do support investment in things like housing, education and childcare. And one of the major reasons for this, we argue, is that lots of them have younger relatives themselves in their 20s and 30s that are struggling financially and that they want government to do more to support. I realised I had that slide. <laughs> 
So the Resolution Foundation have done, have done a lot of research that suggests that we are going through an unprecedentedly high level of intergenerational inequality in Britain, with younger people struggling to accumulate the savings and access to the housing ladder that was common amongst previous generations. What, to what extent do older voters care about this? It's been alleged that perhaps this intergenerational inequality is inevitable, because there are simply many more older voters than younger voters now, unlike in the 80s and 90s. But this assumes, of course, that each age group only ever votes in their self-interest. We argue, in fact, that actually we should expect attitudes to be far more nuanced than this. And the reason is, an underappreciated consequence of intergenerational equality is that many voters in their 50s, 60s and 70s, who feel themselves to be prosperous and relatively economically secure, will have relatives in their late teens, 20s and 30s who are struggling financially, struggling to get on the housing ladder, struggling to afford childcare. And not only will they be exposed to problems further down the life cycle, we also believe that perhaps as a consequence of intergenerational inequality, they may feel secure enough in themselves that they can afford to prioritise the well-being of their younger relatives in politics. We think this sort of family-centric uh, voting model, if you want, is credible for two reasons. We think that older adults might well prioritise the well-being of younger relatives for two reasons. The first is simply what we might call emotional bonds. We cite a lot of evidence in our report that, unsurprisingly, Older adults care about the well-being of their younger relatives and, pr and consider the well-being of those younger relatives to be very important for their sense of esteem and identity. We cite interesting evidence that older adults who have struggling younger relatives have lower life satisfaction and even worse quality sleep than those whose relatives are more fortunate. But as well as self-interest, as well as altruism, there's also perhaps a self-interested reason why you might be concerned about the well-being of your younger relatives, and that is you as an older person, may not feel that your own time and money is completely insulated by the problems facing your young relatives. If your young relatives can't afford childcare, you might be called in to help out as a grandparent babysit your relatives more often. And of course, you're also probably going to have to pass a lot more resources onto them as well from your own savings. There was a recent report by the BBC that a majority of first-time buyers now need parental support to get on the housing ladder, with the average given uh, some given by a parent to be around the region of £25,000. I think that's 30000 in London or so. So this is a large amount of uh, support that older relatives are needing to give to their younger relatives, which makes it credible that they might want to seek a bailout for the bank of mum and dad and increase government support for that reason. So to test this, which model is credible? This sort of self-interest intergenerational warfare model of politics or this family matters, family-centric model that we propose? To find out, we ran a survey of around 6,000 adults, including 4,400 or so that were in their middle ages and older, 40s, 50s, 60s, etc., in August of last year. We asked them about their attitudes to intergenerational equality, family, and towards the sorts of public spending policies that might help improve the well-being of young adults. Our key motivator, what we believe could be a key motivator for older adults, is their answer to this question. Thinking about your own close family, how well are family members in the following age groups doing financially on average, between a scale of 0 to 10, very badly to very well? And we asked about the well-being of their younger relatives, 18s, 20s, 30s, their middle-aged relatives, and older adult relatives. If they said that the well-being of these relatives was below a 5 out of 10, below the midpoint of the scale, we classified them as having relatively struggling, relatives struggling financially. So, how many people have financially struggling relatives? We argue it's around one in four people aged 40 plus. What I've done on this graph in the red line 
is graphed the smoothed average number of people at each year of age that have struggling relatives in their late teens, 20s and 30s. And in the black, we have the percentage that have struggling relatives in their middle age group, and in grey, the percentage with struggling relatives in their 60s and 70s. As you can see, the intergenerational inequalities that the Resolutions Foundation have identified are, are understood within the context of people's own family. Many more people have struggling young relatives in their late teens, 20s and 30s than have struggling relatives at any other year of age. And of course, there's some heterogeneity here. Around one in three people in their 50s and early 60s, the pensioners of tomorrow, consider their young adult relatives to be struggling financially. This declined somewhat, but even amongst those in their 60s and 70s, it's still about one in one-fifth or so people on average have struggling younger relatives. And we argue that this is a sort of hidden electorate, this group of voters, which we don't hear much about in the press and in discussions of intergenerational issues. We call them family fortunes voters because we wanted to make sure we were referencing a, uh, a TV show which no one under 40 could possibly have heard of. And that's <laughs> um, so that is people aged 40 and above with struggling younger relatives. And we argue that this makes up 17% of all potential British voters. That's about 8 million people, or roughly twice the size of the Red Wall, which is something we hear much more about. This is an overlooked segment of the electorate, though. And we argue that they're important potentially for the next election because this big segment of voters seem to think differently, prioritise differently and vote differently than others their own age. And in general, they seem to be more altruistic towards young adults in their political preferences. So how do these, uh, this group of voters, these family fortune voters, think differently? We asked our sample about their attitudes to five policies that would appear to be useful towards struggling young adults in modern Britain. Increased access to affordable housing, increased access to council housing, increased access to different forms of education, university education and vocational and technical training, and also increased ac ac um, access to affordable childcare. And we asked them, how much would you support government spending on each of these five proposals? In the dark grey there, I've put the percentage of people aged 60 and above that say they would support or strongly support government investment in each of these five areas. And in the red, I've highlighted the support for each of these five policies among adults over 60 who also have a struggling younger relative within their family. As you can see, support amongst these family fortunes voters that have struggling younger relatives is about nine points higher on average on each of these five policy areas. For instance, if you look there at the support for affordable housing, around 72% of adults with struggling younger relatives to support this, as opposed to 70% of voters of adults over 60 overall. So it does appear that having a struggling younger relative is linked to increased support for these policies. Although I would point out that even amongst over 60s overall, there is actually majority support for things like affordable, building more affordable housing in their local area, building more council housing in their local area, which is very surprising, and also increased investment in vocational and education. So family matters, although it's clearly perhaps not everything that explains the support of these older voters. We also didn't want to just see do they support these policies, but are they actually prepared to prioritise the well-being of young adults? To work this out, we asked them, suppose that the government was going to spend more money in three of the following areas, which would you prioritise? Please select three. There followed a randomly ordered list of ten policies. Unbeknownst to the, uh, the, the respondents in our survey, we'd sort of classified four of these as spending that would benefit people their own age group, people in their 60s and 70s, pension, um, state pensions, elderly social care, public transport for pensioners and winter fuel allowances. 
four policies which would be seen to benefit more younger adults, affordable housing, childcare, vocational and technical education, and university education, and then about two policies to sort of throw them off the centre of the task that didn't involve spending more on one age group or another, increased support for renewable energy and increased investment in the border forces. And because they had free choices, it would be perfectly possible for older voters just to pick from the list of the four policies that would benefit their own age group. To what extent were they willing to do that? We actually found out that a, lot, a larger proportion of older voters than we might expect if we were adopting a pure self-interest frame were prepared to prioritise the well-being of young adults. Overall, and in grey there I've put the percentage of people over 60 that prioritised affordable housing in particular, or at least one of the four policies aimed at younger adults. Overall, about a third of older adults selected affordable housing as the priority, and around 60% chose at least one of the four policies aimed at young adults. But once again, you can see that support for these policies is higher, I've put it in red there, amongst those aged 60 and above who have struggling relatives within their own family. Roughly half of this group chose to for government should prioritise more affordable housing, and over two-thirds prioritised at least one of those four policies, housing, education, or childcare, that was aimed at young adults. So family fortune voters, again, seem to want to prioritise younger adults in politics. And finally, we, didn't, we saw that this wasn't just about their policy preferences. It also seems that older adults with struggling younger relatives also appear to vote differently. We also asked them about their voter intention, and this was in August of last year, before politics got a little crazy in September. And as you can see on the right there, we've got amongst, we have, sorry, let me start that again. In dark crimson, I've shown the percentage of people planning to vote Labour, and in light blue, the percentage of people planning to vote for the Conservatives. On the left, you can see the vote share amongst all people over 60, and the Conservatives have a very large lead at that point in August of last year, among over 60s in general. But if we turn to the right and look at just the vote intention amongst those aged 16 above with struggling relatives, we see that there is a statistical tie. The Conservatives lose their lead amongst the segment of the older electorate who have struggling family members in their late teens, 20s and 30s. And because some of you are probably wondering, this is robust um, to using statistical methods to control for the effects of class. So it's not simply that this group on the right poorer in general and therefore have poorer relatives and that explains their greater support for Labour. Rather, it seems that we may be witnessing some generally general family voting phenomenon. So I'll sum up there. People aged 40 plus that are financially struggling young adult relatives, family fortunes voters, make up about 17% of the British electorate as of August of last year. We very rarely, very, we very rarely hear about this group in media discussions of intergenerational fairness, but we should hear more because this group of older voters seem to want to prioritise the well-being of young adults in politics, and we argue that's because they are concerned about the well-being of their family members. Now, both parties could, in theory, appeal to this segment of the electorate by promising to do more for their young relatives, but as of August last year, it appears that Labour are benefiting predominantly. And more generally, we think a way to appeal to these voters, if we look at the most popular policies we polled older adults on, might be to increase access to affordable housing and vocational education programmes. These two policies appear particularly right for intergenerational consensus policy making. So to answer this question that I started the presentation with, are generations selfish? We actually believe it's a lot more complicated than that. And large numbers of the older electorate actually appear to be relatively altruistic in their politics. So I'll stop there. I'll just let you know that you can download our full report online at the following link, which I believe is in your handout today. 
and I'll be happy to answer any questions about the report later on. But for now, I'll hand back to the panel for some discussion of some of the points I've raised here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Excellent. Very, very interesting. And thank you so much. Um, and of course, this is the right day to be having this debate with the triple lock debate raging uh, as to what should happen. It's a vivid example of these issues. And Jane doesn't just sort of lead the work they do at Neffield on this intergenerational work. You're also head of the Nuffield election study. So you're the ideal person to tease out the politics of all this for us, Jane. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed, David. Um, yesterday, when the triple lock was being discussed, the, the question, the, the point was being made, well, you know, go figure, right? Older people vote. And, and this was the context in which that triple lock discussion yesterday was taking place. And, you know, what I want to really reflect on is three things, really, um, about, you know, the choices that politicians have around some of these kinds of topics in terms of political strategy, in terms of spending, but also in terms of rhetoric. Um, so I'm going to start with rhetoric. Um, it's interesting as a political scientist to think that this degree of evidence that Zach has just presented to you about the potential for intergenerational solidarity exists even though it's never spoken about. Um, so if we think about you know, so much of our work in political science is, well, this is the debate, this is the way these things are being framed, these are the issues that are being talked about and that primes the salience of those things and it frames the choices and we would expect in a sort of normal world that if you've primed something and if you frame the choice as something then that's more likely to therefore start to matter and start to relate to the vote. What Zach's shown you from this research is that this is happening anyway. So it's out there, you know, there's a very strong degree of potential intergenerational solidarity. We think it makes a ton of sense if you think about how important the family is to us as individuals. We also think in political science about the importance of in-groups. You know, if there was ever an in-group that would matter, it should surely be the one that you love the most and maybe get annoyed with the most, but you know, but you know, you know about the most. So I think the first thing to say on rhetoric is that there are real options here in politics and that it's not a given that we have to think about age being a divide, um, age being something that essentially polarises older voters and pits them against the interests of younger voters. And I think any political party starting to talk about the importance of family, the importance of all of us together, the people that we care about as well as ourselves, would indeed find resonance with those sorts of messages. The fact that they're not being said now doesn't mean they couldn't be even more important given if there were to be framing and priming of these sorts of these sorts of concerns they could be even more important in elections than they are now so there's an opportunity there it's not a static thing it's not a given and um, and it could be it could make a very interesting impact the second point i wanted to make was about the electoral consequences of the current cost of living crisis and the associated problems in public services that we have now. And, uh, and this is just a very obvious implication of this research, which is that there, it's a kind of double whammy 
for the government. So the government is likely to suffer when older voters feel more insecure themselves. And of course, you know, we're not saying that that's not also happening, right? Um, if you're on a fixed income, if you're on a pension, inflation's very bad for you because obviously you don't have the means to find other ways to, to meet those costs unless you're drawing on savings. And many people won't have those. But it's also going to matter that not just how you're feeling, but how other people that you're close to are also being impacted. And the other interesting um, observation in this research is that awareness levels are very high very high about the intergenerational difficulties um, that the Resolution Foundation has done so much work to highlight. Um, but awareness is, is indeed very high amongst the electorate as well. And so when this cost of living crisis bites, it's not just what's happening to you, it's also the additional pain and the difficult prospects now for the younger generation that matters too. And then just finally, the other electoral point is, is that age divides have come to be extremely important since 2016 in particular. And this research is really helping us understand that those divides aren't there on the economics. They're really there on the cultural divides. That doesn't mean that economics isn't important. It's the most important issue. It's likely to, very likely, in fact, almost certainly likely, to be the thing that decides the outcome of the next general election. Um, but the consensus that exists between the ages around economics is far greater than exists around those cultural issues. And we think that family ties and the role of the family is a very important reason that consensus exists. Thank you. Good, thank you very much, Jim. Very interesting perspective on it. Uh, now, Rachel, you have to, you've written on this subject yourself in New Statesman and elsewhere. Well, your, your observations on all this. Yes, uh, I have written for the New Statesman, including interviewing you in um, <laughs> 2021. Uh, and we were talking about the impact, particularly of the pandemic and the broad trend there of younger people, workers making personal sacrifices, economic sacrifices, social sacrifices in order to safeguard and protect their older relatives, which is the right thing to do, but whether there might be any kind of idea that possibly older generations could then pay something back. And uh, I, I thought I'd quote you on, on this. Oh. <laughs> um, you said, although I'm sometimes presented as a generational warrior, one of the reasons I wrote the books is that I genuinely think older people care about the prospects of their kids and grandkids. And similarly, younger people want their grandparents to be protected from the virus and have a decent income. So actually, generational solidarity is one of the most po powerful forces that we can harness. And I remember writing that up and thinking, nah. <laughs> because sadly, that, that doesn't match my experience of writing about this and, and trying to draw attention to the issue of, uh, of intergenerational inequality. I'm actually cited in this report um, as one of the generational warriors who goes, oh my goodness, it's all so broken. It's the old versus the young. Look at what's going on. We're all doomed. Um, it's my first time being cited in a report, so yeah. thank you. Um, this has changed my mind. This has actually given me a fresh perspective on some of these challenges and the way that we should be talking about these challenges. So yes, I write a lot about these issues and I'm sure for everyone in this room and everyone watching, you're all very well, well aware of what those issues are. There are kind of three myths that I come up against when having these conversations uh, just with ordinary people or on Twitter or in sort of political discussions. Myth one is that uh, 
older people have paid in their whole lives, and so that's the end of the debate. Yeah. And for this, I point to some research from the Resolution Foundation that those born in 1956 can expect over a lifetime to receive £291,000 more from the state than they put in, uh, whereas somebody born in 1996 can only expect £132,000 more than they put in, so, so less than half. Somehow, making that point, presenting that data, it, it doesn't go well. People don't like hearing it. It doesn't seem to be as convincing as I think it is when, when written down on paper. Um, the second myth I hear a lot is that it's natural for people to accumulate wealth and become more prosperous as they get older, which is obviously the case. And therefore, the fact that there is inequality between the generations now is natural and normal. And as people age, they will be able to accumulate assets and, and financial security. And Obviously, that is the case. Nobody is expecting somebody at 18 to have the same amount as wealth as somebody at 80. But I think we, we're all very well aware of the trends. We're aware of various ways you can show the statistics. A third of millennials will never be able to buy a property. The difference in how much you have to be earning to buy a property in certain certain places. I say this as somebody who has just, just bought a house and looking at Zoopla as how much the house price is now versus how much it was when the previous owners bought it in 1990. Just don't do it. It's not fun. <laughs> um, but again, that, that doesn't seem to be a message that is particularly resonating. Um, and the third one is that if this is the situation for young people, it's all our own fault because we don't vote. Um, whereas older people do. And one of the things that this report shows is that uh, while voting rates are probably slightly higher. Um, demographically, there are more voters aged over 60 because of population trends, and the way they are geographically dispersed gives them an electoral advantage versus younger people who are cluster in, in cities and therefore the power of our vote is, is less. But again, that, that doesn't seem very convincing at all either. Um, so I get quite depressed talking about this and eventually stopped writing about it because I have gone all of the data is there, nobody wants to listen. Then you get a report like this that says, actually, framing it that way, the way I, I have been, the way other, my colleagues in the media have been framing it, is the wrong way to do it. And that rather than pitting the generations against each other, which is not, I think, what we were trying to do, we're trying to draw attention to those discrepancies, but that, that is an unhelpful message for the public and for politicians. And what is a much more helpful message is, hang on, nobody exists in a vacuum, nobody exists independently of the rest of society, and people care very, very deeply about the prospects of their relatives and their loved ones, and that isn't being reflected in the debate, and it's not being reflected, I think, in the way either of the main parties look at some of these issues. That figure that 17% um, of the electorate, your, your family fortunes voters, who are over 40 but have a younger relative who is really struggling, that that is higher numerically than the red wall voters, that really struck me, because that is a electoral demographic that I don't feel is being catered to at all. I think the reason it's not being catered to is because the debates we have about this are incredibly simplistic. But reading this research and assuming that people who say, yes, actually, I, I would like some council houses or some affordable housing built near me in my local area so that the people I love and people like them can afford to actually have a decent start in life, 
they're not being represented politically, they're not being represented in the debate, and we're hearing too much uh, of people like me putting the generations against each other. You're hearing too much of the people who argue that I'm heartless and just hate old people, uh, which is not the case. And you're hearing too much from the the NIMBYs, I guess, the people, the very small but vocal minority who say we don't want housing in particular in our local area and our voices are the ones that count because they are the largest. And that is a huge political challenge, I think, how we how we address, how we challenge, channel that electoral demographic into something positive. But I also think it's a huge opportunity and I think it's an opportunity that no politician is, is really seizing at the moment. And uh, I hope they're paying attention to this and I hope they're listening. That's fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And I think it's not often that actually someone comes and, and sits on our panel and says some research that we have published or made available for someone else's research, this has changed their minds. So it's always a great <laughs> moment. We, um, we're a think tank. We like that kind of thing. It's wonderful. Um, Sophie, your observations. Um, great. So, I mean, first, just to add David's thanks to Zach and the team for, for the research. It's been really um, helpful for us to be involved in this. As you say, like, as Resolution Foundation, we're often looking at, you know, what policies are important from an intergenerational fairness perspective. And this kind of gives a new way to sort of frame how you pitch those, just as, as kind of Rachel was saying. Um, uh, in terms of the kind of like framing of the election, so we've got the election coming up next year, I thought what I would kind of focus on, or we expect we have the election coming up next year, I thought what I would focus on is, um, okay, so that group, this um, family fortunes demographic, uh, like what do we think has happened to them since your um, uh, your research was done, so um, the field work was done, I think, in August 2022. So, um, in the kind of year since, and, and kind of over the next year, what 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 is the kind of economic um, environment looking like, and and how we might think that demographic could change, um, uh, given you know the importance of you know their different voting um, preferences and and the different policy preferences they have, and um, and what that might mean for. Um, for the kind of campaigns um, that we might go into. Um, so the first thing is uh, what's going to happen next year. Um, so we published some research recently, our Living Standards Outlook, and, and it's a pretty it's a pretty dire economic outlook. Um, so we basically are expecting um, zero real growth for the kind of average household, uh, um, non-pensioner household, I should say, um, in, into next year, into the election year, um, and this will leave. Um, the um, median household's income four percent below it was, uh, below the level that it was in 1920, um, making this the worst parliament on record for income growth. So that's a quite a dire um, sort of like economic um, assessment for for the last few years. Um, and even more importantly, the low income, the lower income half of the um, non-pensioner population will fare worse. So they're going to actually see a one percent decrease in. Uh, we're expecting them to see a 1% um, hit to their real incomes um, next year with an additional 300,000 people falling into absolute poverty. So that kind of gives the, the macro context. It doesn't really talk about the generations, but um, that those kind of lo lower income groups are likely to be experiencing quite a difficult time. And, and given that we know, you know a fair few of them will be amongst that younger group, we could expect, um, uh, yeah, the, the this, uh, this this family fortunes cohort is probably not disappearing anytime soon. Um, and then I think, Jane, you, you kind of touched on it a, a little bit, but um, our intergenerational analysis um, that we did last year looked at kind of how the cost of living crisis has played out um, from a kind of intergenerational perspective. Um, 
And in particular, we found that the the, the financial resilience or or the lack of um, financial resilience of younger age groups, so um, the fact that they have a much smaller kind of savings buffer and and, and less money put aside to kind of help them through uh, the cost shocks that came in the cost of living crisis meant that they were were very exposed um, and and were very negatively affected by um, the crisis that that we've seen over the last kind of year. what we're now seeing is that the kind of epicenter of the cost of living crisis has kind of changed a little bit. So it's moved from sort of energy and food and the kind of inflation crisis into higher interest rates as a result of um, the Bank of England trying to tackle inflation. Um, and so what we're now seeing is is the, the kind of focus of that crisis and, and who's kind of being hit by it also changing. Um, but ultimately, you know, from an intergenerational perspective, um, it's those younger adults who actually previously were doing relatively well um that at least they, they'd got on the housing ladder um, and that was kind of a sign of um you know um relative success uh, perhaps against some of their comparators but they are now um likely to begin struggling financially as as those kind of mortgage costs skyrocket um and it is the younger age groups where you know interest is the largest part of their mortgage costs who'll see the kind of largest relative increases um so yeah as as Zach's brought out, the 17% of British adults that have these these struggling younger relatives do sort of behave quite differently. Um, and I guess overall, I would just say that the economic outlook does not suggest that we're going to see this group kind of uh, uh, diminishing anytime soon, moving into the into the kind of election cycle over the next year. Um, uh, and in fact, when we look at past elections, so 1974 and 2010 are the only years where we had elections, where we had weaker income growth um, than we will have next year. And, and in both of those, we did actually see a change in government um, in, in, in both of those two election cycles. Um, I was going to talk a little bit about the, um, the, the, the context for the state pension as well, because there was also some really interesting findings that uh, maybe got talked about a little bit less by Zach um, in his presentation, but about the kind of strong intergenerational consensus that there was for, for older generational spending, um, and that is on, you know, on pensions, that is on um, uh, um, care and, and, and other kind of areas um, that are targeted towards older generations. So the younger generations are still very, very um, supportive of these policies and support them over stuff like educational, um, uh, more educational spending, um, and, and I think it's really interesting and, and kind of ties into this debate on the state pension. But I feel like we're probably going to probably going to get into that at some point during this. So I might just kind of uh, wrap up there and leave it with the uh, the big picture. Where where are we headed and how things might change? Thank you, Sarah. Um, it's just a couple of observations on this and then we'll uh, move on to Q&A. I mean, first, it's this is I still think it's worth registering. This is a piece of political electoral analysis focused on different family structures and circumstances. It puts the family at the centre of the political analysis. And there was a kind of modernist view about how Britain and other advanced economies were changing, that the family would be less and less significant. Um, I think what this tells us, one thing it tells us is the family and circumstances of the family are so significant that 17, they, they, they've identified a group of 17% of voters for whom it'll change the way, potentially change the way they vote. And this is partly due to a change in the structure of the family. One thing that happened is in the old days we used to have, when there, there were much higher birth rates, people were much more likely to have siblings. And when life expectancy was 
lower, they're also less likely to have very old people within their family. So the family was a more horizontally spread unit. What's happened now with fewer kids and longer life expectancy is families have become much more vertical bamboo pole entities, which means they are in an environment where in general things are tougher for younger people. The intergenerational exchanges within the family matter more and more. The family looks more and more like an intergenerational, uh, the, the most important tool we've got for intergenerational exchange. So it's, it's become more important. And then further, enhanced by something that we are very focused on here, which is the rise in the significance of wealth in our country, assets held above all by uh, older people. So there's lots of things making family incredibly important in politics, not in the kind of 30 years ago sort of uh, trad family arguments we're familiar with, but in, a, in some ways a more pervasive form of shaping people's view of the economy and what policies they should be. It's my first observation. My second observation, and, and Rachel was describing what I've been through, because I'm also often described as a generational warrior and all that. Um, and in reality, I think that neither altruism nor selfishness quite captures attitudes between the, the generations. And certainly when it comes to the family, sticking with the family, it's a kind of cat's cradle of mutual exchanges and mutual obligations, which are neither purely altruistic, because people may well at the back of their heads, even without ever formulating the thought, I think it is also something that will feed back for them in the future. Um, but nor is it total selfishness. I mean, there was the one, I sometimes think it was captured by that American bumper sticker, be nice to your kids, they choose your nursing home, which is a one way of kind of appealing to intergenerational <laughs> exchanges. There are subtler forms. We talk about the bank of mom and dad. One, some, something that we're very interested in here is, is part of the implicit contract when the bank of mom and dad step in that perhaps the flat or house you buy might be a little bit nearer to us than you otherwise would have done. And then, of course, in return, that'll enable us to help out a bit more with the childcare. But it also, when we get older, if we help out with the childcare now, will you come around a bit more often and help out with us? Now, trying to call, capture all that as either altruism or selfishness, I think understates kind of how complex these exchanges are. And what this fascinating research does brings all those type of exchanges and obligations into proper political analysis. So I think it's a, a very productive uh, line of research. Now we're very fortunate, we've actually got in the room with us this morning, Professor Jane Falkingham from University of Southampton, with whom we're also at Resolution Foundation doing work on intergenerational issues. And, and Jane has researched deeply all these issues on social change. Do you have any observations or comments for us, Jane? Thank you very much. Well, first of all, many, many congratulations on an amazing report. It's absolutely fantastic. And it's really great to see that evidence around intergenerational solidarity. I had the, uh, the pleasure of being uh, advising on the House of Lords Select Committee on, on intergenerational fairness at, uh, just before the pandemic broke. And actually, that started off by thinking that they were going to find uh, the two that two or more than two generations at war with each other, but we ended up concluding again, as you have found, that solidarity is there. 
Um, David's stolen a lot of my thunder because I'm yeah. a professor of demography. So, of course, I was going to immediately talk about the demographics of the family. Um, but I was, I've got a couple of points. Uh, one is um, I was very intrigued when you were talking. I wondered whether there are any differences by gender. I'd be really interested to know uh, whether that there are differences in gender because uh, men and women do play different roles within the family and, and in that web of intergenerational exchanges that David was, was talking about. Um, I was also interested in whether you looked at actually whether there are differences by family structures. So whether you've got a, you know, a, a sole child or a, a set of grandchildren or whether there are differences according to, to the family structures. Um, and finally, I was just intrigued by your list of policies just picking up David's point around the growth of assets, you didn't actually have um, inheritance policy there, and I was just wondering, uh, that might have been an interesting thing to look at. But congratulations, absolutely fantastic uh, work, and I'm sure we can have lots of conversations going forward. Thank you very much, Jane. And now let me turn to some of the questions we've had on uh, Slido, and uh, there's several different themes emerging. Um, let's let's start with the with the the topic of the day. Let's uh, so for example, uh, one question from John Bryant, which will I hope come up in your screen in a moment, um, asking about what attitudes are to the state pension, and Sophie uh, touched on that. But then I want to link it with a couple of other questions we've had. An anonymous question asking. Um, whether people would support policies even if they had to put up taxes. In other words, let's, let's face it, when you get into real politics, of course we all like saying we want everything. Uh, so when you face financial constraints, you have to decide on priorities and uh, how would people expect those to play out. Um, and we've even got one very direct question about the substance of whether or not the triple lock should be abandoned. So how this, how this at the moment, um, and our own work at Resolution shows this, we're in a position where benefits for families have, if anything, been cut below the rate of inflation uh, by about £600, and we've had benefits for pensioners rising above inflation by more than £800. Um, it'd be nice to say we should keep the benefits for pensioners and do more for families, but there are constraints. So how interpreting your evidence, act, jump straight into the, the triple lock debate and how much you think young people would support pension spend as against other spend. Thank you. Um, I think I'll just, to respond to one of the other questions, did the questions ask, would you support this policy even if it meant higher taxes, even if it meant spending cuts elsewhere? Very simply, yes. That was embedded in the question. Would you support or oppose this policy, even if it meant raising your taxes, even if it meant spending elsewhere? We didn't want them to think this was sort of a free lunch. As for the question about the triple lock, the report, obviously, this section of the report, we'll probably release another one later on, focuses on the attitudes of older people towards investment in the young. We've also been doing research, yes, quite right, among do younger people support investment in the old? And actually, contrary to what we sometimes see online, large numbers of young people do continue to support things like the pensions triple lock, like investment in elderly social care. I think it's a majority, an absolute majority of people under 40 uh, do support the triple lock when we explain it to them. 
And it's interesting to think about why that is. We, we did look, do you think you will benefit from the triple lock? Do you think your pension will be worth as much as what old people are currently getting now? And actually very few young people believe this. It's only about 10% <laughs> of people in the 20s think they'll actually get the triple lock. What was fascinating is their response to this question had no relation to their answer of whether they support the triple lock. So they seem to support spending on pensioners even where they don't think they will benefit themselves. And one of the reasons for this might well be that they have, as someone mentioned earlier, family members and it might be that they care about, uh, just for altruistic reasons, they want their older relatives to have higher income, or it might be this point about, I don't want to have to look after my mum and dad myself, I don't want to have to give up my job. And it would be interesting to look, are there gender effects of that as well? Because you would think perhaps women are more exposed to, to those sort of, that sort of double burden uh, as well, of having to look after parents. Interestingly, on the question of old to young, we didn't find gender effects. We didn't find that older female adults were more worried about their younger relatives or more likely to support spending on them, which was interesting. Um, we did find some other, uh, but, but just quickly on the issue of family structure, we did find who are most worried about their younger relatives. It tends to be people whose younger relatives have not been to university and are not on the housing ladder, which makes kind of it makes sense, right? So you're much more worried if your younger relatives have not been to university and if they can't get on the property ladder as well. And we can talk about more about where we'll find those sorts of voters later. But um, in answer to David's very quick question, yes, young people do seem to support spending on the old, and we would argue, again, that family is likely another reason for this. Jane, anything Thank you want to add? Yeah, just to reiterate that those, um, so Zach was talking about that uh, family fortunes voters think differently, prioritise differently and vote differently. And the prioritisation is particularly crucial when thinking about the affordability question. Yeah. So these are people who are saying, so as Zach said, you know, we asked, we did say, look, there will be some cost, it's not a free lunch, but on the prioritization, mm -hmm. you had to specifically say more spending on the young than the old. So these voters who had, or individuals in the survey who had family members who were financially struggling, really did want to say, yes, more there, not less here, not just more for everybody. Um, and so I think it's just kind of more kind of grist to the mill of really thinking that these are trade-offs people are indeed willing to make. Um, if I could just on gender, we didn't find any effects for gender, but I, that doesn't mean to say that there aren't gendered stories beneath the hood somewhere. Um, so we have 6,000 people, uh, that's a large survey for this kind of thing. We asked loads of questions about family. We didn't, we weren't able to drill into some of the detailed family structure questions um, that you might be thinking of. So that might be something for further research. Um, but it's, it, so when, when we're talking about a sample of 6,000 and you start cutting it this way and you can't start cutting it this way and you want to look at men, women differences, perhaps in different kinds of household structures, we, we're not able to do that. But I do think there are gendered stories here somewhere. Um, they're just not in a simple way. They're not in a kind of simplistic um, cut that we are able to identify in relation to these particular patterns. Um, I could go on, but I won't. Yeah. Rachel, and just uh, as well as writing more widely on this generational stuff, I mean, just reflect a bit on the politics of the triple lock and whether there is any chance, you think, of a kind of mutual disarmament in which we go into an explanation with neither Labour nor Conservatives having an explicit pledge in the manifesto on the triple lock. Well, the thing about the triple lock, and the thing that I think 
a lot of the public doesn't quite understand is that the way it's designed means that it will keep rising no matter what that is the point of it so it rises by 2.5 percent if there's no growth and nothing's happening even if the economy's shrinking it rises by 2.5 percent if you've got high inflation it rises by that if you've got wage growth it rises by that so the fact that we've already seen an increase of 10% of the last increase because that's what inflation was rising by. My wages didn't go up by 10%. I'm not sure if any of yours did. Um, that was the rate of inflation, so that was the increase yeah. that the pension has got. Now, wages have caught up with inflation. The I think 8.5% is the latest figure. That is to catch up for the previous inflation that they didn't get an increase for, but pensions are getting that increase too. And I have spoken to people about sort of pension design, and they point out that the British state pension is actually, compared to parts of Europe, relatively low, which is true. But you have to think, if you were trying to design a higher pension, a more secure pension, would you do it this way? Because as it currently is, it's going to keep growing higher than wages forever and ever, because that's what it's designed to do. So I f I'd love to speak to whoever designed it, um, <laughs> because I, I feel like there's inherent in the structure is... It, the fact that it has to be temporary, otherwise it sort of gets out of control. That, I don't think, is where the political conversation is. I've also got one comment, I think, that is kind of important when we talk about the universality of it. We've just had uh, free school meals for all mm. primary school pupils in London uh, and, and a debate in Labour about whether that should be pushed out the rest of the country. And the argument for it is that uh, some people, some, some children are living in poverty and they're not quite at the level where they're eligible for free school meals and they're on that borderline and so it's better to give it to everyone so you you don't miss out on, they, they, they don't miss out on the benefit. And there has been a huge amount of opposition to that, that it's just handouts for middle class parents. And I kind of agree, I'm not necessarily sure that that particular if you're directing money to help children in poverty, is giving free school meals to all children, regardless of income, the best thing to do? I think there's a, there's a debate to be had there, and that debate is being had. Somehow, when you look at pensions, the second you talk about it, the second you talk about the amount we spend on it and the levels and the trends, what you, what you come out with is, but there are some pensioners who are very poor. And yes, there are some pensioners who are very poor. Demographically, they're more likely to be wealthy than basically any other age cohort. Uh, I often point out that one in five pensioner households are millionaires. I think it's now closer to one in four. And people go, well, not all pensioners are millionaires. No, they're not. That's not the point. The point is, it's the only area where we have universality as the default without any kind of debate. And I do think that debate does need to happen. Yeah. And, look, and our work at Resolution has shown that the when you go down to the poorest 20% of pensioners after housing costs, the poorest pensioners are more affluent than the poorest non-pensioners. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's tough for both groups, but it's, it's even tougher for the families. Your question, what were people thinking of? <laughs> um, were, I was, of course, in the coalition cabinet when it was decided. I'm not, I'm not just blaming uh, you. Uh, but I can, and I, I think three, I can remember three arguments being used for the triple lock then, uh, which none of which I think apply now. The first argument was the basic pension is still very low relative to earnings. Ironically, the result of the Conservative government's policy through under Margaret Thatcher when it was linked solely to prices. So there was an argument that you needed a step change in the value of the pension relative to earnings. And the IFS report yesterday shows that now relative to earnings pensions 
The state pension is basically back pretty much to where it was in 1979, before that long period when it was linked to prices. So the, the step change argument, I don't think people did see it as a permanent shift. You need to make a step change adjustment. You could argue that happened. The second argument was, um, and I can remember some of Michael is saying this, well, it, interest rates are so low that all the pensioners in my constituency who've just saved up £10,000 in their Halifax building society account and no longer get anything, anything from that, and it's a real shock to them. So there was an argument that pensioners are the biggest losers from low interest rates. And of course, now interest rates are significantly higher. And indeed, our work at Resolution Show, the income now being secured in interest on deposits and savings has surged to sort of over 80 billion pounds or so, isn't it, Sophie? So, and a lot of that will be older people. So the interest rate argument. And then the third argument was used was, we can pay for it by bringing forward the increase in the pension age. And so it was seen as part of a package which also included speeding up the increase in the female pension age, which itself actually created some uh, grievances. The, the waspy women, the women who said that this is a, um, uh, we weren't given enough notice, this is far too brutal, far too subtle. I think the only demonstration we've ever had outside the Resolution Foundation, obviously, <laughs> was the waspy women complaining when I defended the the increase in the speed of the increase in the female pension. So those were all the backdrop to the original decision. None of those factors apply now. So we shouldn't just say because it was the policy before, it's obvious it's got to continue. So I think, I think Rachel's challenge is a, is a very fair one. Sophie, anything you want to add on all this and, and pensions? Yeah, I mean, I guess I just wanted to add that I think the research does a, a really good job of trying to set out those um, trade-offs that you'd have to make so it does it does say you know if, even if you have to pay higher taxes and it does like as you say get people to kind of prioritize policies or pit policies kind of against each other so that you're you're having to make an explicit kind of prioritization decision what what it just can't do because it's just extremely difficult is to actually give people like a a, a real sense of the costs behind like the various policies and to be really specific about what you're talking about for the specific policies um, and that's that's not like a shortcoming the research I just really don't think it would be possible but what it means is that you know our, our assessment is that the the triple lock you know even since um, the March um, budget will now be an additional two billion a year because of this because um, of where we've ended up on on the triple lock and and you know as you said, it's, it's because it's 8.5% earnings and that includes this, this one-off um, bonus that was made to NHS workers and civil, civil servants um, that will now be a permanent increase in, in, in the pension. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and you can never really kind of give people a sense of like the scale of, of, of the cost and how much, you know, what does that actually look like as a tax um, very easily in, in kind of a research. So although, although it, does, um, it, it does try and make people kind of embrace those... those um, those factors, uh, it's very difficult to get them to do it. And I think also, um, my understanding in these kind of services, people quite often say that they're willing to spend more and be taxed more on policies when you ask them. And then the way that they vote and that they behave looks a little bit differently um, from that when you actually um, ask them to come and, uh, and foot the bill. Um, and obviously all of this is happening in a context where the government is extremely 
um, like the, the the financial headroom that it's working with and the kind of demographic pressures and everything else are so difficult and the financial situation looks so difficult um, kind of uh, you know unless we unless we really see some kind of growth um, swooping in and, and saving them um, sometime soon that uh, it makes it even more difficult to kind of make those trade-offs and those decisions at the moment because you are really having to decide you know that two billion is, is really got to kind of push something else out and what we've seen is you know public investment and other things kind of coming out um, in order to kind of pay for these these other commitments good thank you I'm just I'm gonna go now um, sorry I'm gonna get okay, another round of questions before that I'm gonna do our poll great feature of our resolution events we always ask our participants uh, online as well to join in on the poll question we've got and I'll give you a few minutes to answer it. We might turn to it towards the end of our session but you can see we're asking you how these are the drawing very much on the on the survey that Zach and Jane did which do you think are the intergenerational issues most likely to have an impact during the general election and those are the options and it'll be interesting to see how people vote and we will come back and report that later on. I think one thing that we should, looking back to the questions we've had on Slido, um, one of the issues is how this ties in um, to are the cultural differences between the generations or not? Does this, does this, mm. I think we're getting a bit confused. We'd love to hear from our um, panelists, are, is it that attitudes change as we go through the life cycle? Is that attitudes of different cohorts are different? Or is this evidence that actually attitudes, the cultural gap between the different generations may not be as wide as we thought? Um, and uh, we've had Bobby Duffy here talking about his book on this. And um, and it's a really interesting, important question. One possibility that my assessment, influenced by Bobby's work and this work, is that paradoxically, the cultural gap, the cultural generational gap, is between the boomers and their parents. The moment when liberalism arrives is the boomer generation. And the cultural gaps between boomers and their kids and even sometimes now grandkids, is less than between boomers and their parents. So the generational divide is between the pre-war generation and the boomers, culturally, but the economic divide is between the boomers and their kids. So the economic divide, my crude interpretation of the evidence, is it lies at a different place than the cultural divide. But maybe there aren't any significant cultural divides at all. I mean, Jane, do you want to start on that? Oh. Uh, where, how, what are the, have there been shifts in attitudes? And what did this latest survey tell us about attitudinal differences? Thank you, David. Um, I'm going to try and do this quickly. Um, so our survey looked at cultural attitudes as benchmarks because we want to compare the consensus on economics with something else where there wasn't such a strong consensus. And so just to kind of go back to the point that I was making earlier, the economic consensus between the boomers and their kids and between all different age groups is much, much greater on economics than it is on cultural issues. Um, if we think about other evidence to bring to bear to your question about generations, cohorts and age, 
the liberalisation of the electorate, we've got this kind of interesting pattern, haven't we, that the, the, the electorate, the population has become more liberal over time, and yet it's these culture divides that are so explosive in British politics and have been for the last two elections in particular. Our data, this is now, I'm now off topic, sorry, but it's um, back onto the British mm, election study. Yeah, yeah. Our data, we are looking at this and it it's actually shows kind of two key moments historically of kind of rapid liberalisation. It sort of flattens off and then you see it again after 2010, 2010. Um, the question I think that's interesting for the next election, if I can sort of bring it mm -hmm. back, yep. is, is Brexit really. It's the fact that we have to remember that yes, there have been age divides, and yes, it's still true that more leavers are supporting the Conservatives, but the proportion of leavers is dropping. So if we think about the defining issue that's divided the age groups on sort of cultural issues, it's it's about Brexit. I mean, Brexit's the big shock that's made this more important in the electorate and it's made it more important to deciding elections. So there's some really interesting things that are happening, but if leavers are, are, are waning or less decided in whether or not they would vote leave again, that's more likely to be taking place amongst older voters because those were the leavers in the first place. So there's there's loads that I could say, but I'll try and yeah. bring it back to our thing, which is there is so much greater consensus on the economics. And it's a really important observation. So we don't think old oh, people are divided on everything. It's not true. I'm just going to put, sorry, I'm going to turn you in a second. I'm just going to add a second question in, which follows on from this. It's really interesting. Then we'll have certain turning, which is the this point, hang on, we do see uh, look, and Torsten and I have got a very crude slide, not as sophisticated as your analysis, just voting by age. And you do see, uh, compared with voting by class, and you do see oh, yeah. that in modern Britain, voting by age is more and more salient and voting by class is less and less salient. So it looks like it does matter for yes. voting. On the other hand, you are drawing attention, let's pull up this in question from Anonymous 2, sort of generational solidarity. So... Yeah, and I, I suppose this is also an answer to Sophie's very good point about, you know, is there, are there lim inherent limitations in survey research? Do people just say one thing, but they vote another? But, of course, the problem with just looking at pure vote choices, recent elections have not just been referendums on the triple lock. They've not just been referendums on whether we should build houses. We know from Jane's work that the most important issue at the last few elections have been either Brexit or, in 2015, immigration. They haven't really, economic issues have not been the deciding issue of the day. And, of course, that has meant that the age divide between the young and old has exploded because age is a better predictor of where you stand on immigration and Brexit than classes. And that's partly the reason why we've seen class arguably shrink as a particular vote choice. Now, I think what James is suggesting is that the next election is unlikely to be fought on those grounds and is more likely to be built on economics. And that might be one of the reasons why we have now seen some voters in their 50s and early 60s move away from the Conservatives since the last election. We know that the support amongst people in their 50s and 60s has gone down. And we would argue perhaps, we can't prove this, but perhaps that is related to some of the family voting mechanisms we've discussed. Um, so the question here is, so, okay, you've got this marvellous picture of a family where the kid, the young adult really cares that granny gets a good pension and granny is really worried that he can't get started out on the housing ladder. Then they go off to vote and she votes Tory and he votes Labour and suggest sort of disentangle that for us. 
Well, Sorry, I guess in a way you just have I, you saying that they other things, be... when they turn up to vote, although yeah. they're saying they're intergenerationally have intergenerational solidarity on these issues, yeah. they are not so salient to affect the vote. But then in your research today, you're showing that for a subset of people, they are so salient they'll affect the vote. Is that and fair? and the salience is changing. Right. So if we look since at since 2019, yeah. since yeah, so if we look at so the big changes since 2019 are that Brexit has fallen off a cliff in terms of people's. Um, express prioritisation. So what really matters to you? That's fallen off a cliff. Then you saw COVID take over and then you saw the economy take over. And so we're in an, a different world to the world that we were in in 2017 and in 2019 when Brexit and associated issues were the deciding factors. I think there's also a wider question within an economic crisis and period that we're in of whether any of the political parties can indeed force people to vote on it the basis that they want them to do, right. which might be yeah. stopping boats and, and things like that. Um, so if the economy is going to determine the election, perhaps that's the moment we're going to see this more in evidence in terms of this economic solidarity, you know, particularly as I think, you know, has been the point you were making as well, David, was that this is, this is, and Sophie, that there are so many more young adults now who are even suffering in new ways. So you might have not got on the housing ladder before, then you were struggling. Now you're on the housing ladder, now you're struggling. So this group is probably larger and probably more salient. Can I just say one very quick thing and then I'll let you go. There's also, I guess, the fascinating possibility, which I think you mentioned on a previous occasion, that maybe some of older people's support for more restrictive immigration positions for Brexit might be because they genuinely believe that that will help their younger relatives. That's something we're yep. unable to explore in the report. Yep. That isn't, we shouldn't say yep. that's, yeah. there's at least the slight possibility that that's true yeah. and that's something we should think more yeah. about as well. Yeah. Oh, I wanted to comment very quickly on the cultural issue. I'm always wary when people talk about cultural huge cultural divides because I remember Cicero saying that uh, about, the, uh, <laughs> about the Roman Republic um, and I think Socrates said it before that oh. and if you think about it it's absolutely outlandish that a 17 year old would have the exact same mm. cultural and political views as their parents or grandparents we, we shouldn't want that to happen yeah. we shouldn't expect that so I think what has changed is with social media, we can see what other generations are talking about all the time and we can see just how wrong they are yeah. about everything. <laughs> that doesn't mean that those cultural divides have increased. It just means that we know about them a bit more. But when it comes to sort of real issues, not just, you know, what do I think in an abstract way about gender or LGBT rights or the environment or British history curriculums or anything like that, one of the, the, the points that is often pointed to is the birth rate is going down and that that is a cultural change in that millennials and Gen Z don't want to have children at the rate that their parents or grandparents did and they're not having children at the same time. And, you know, why is this? Is it feminism? Is it the environment? You know, what has gone wrong in that big cultural shift? And I'm looking at Emma Revel, uh, <laughs> who has is, who is pointed out uh, by the was it the, the age at which your mother and your grandmother were had children and correlated with the age at which they they bought a property like some of this really isn't cultural people have children they start families when they're financially able yeah. to do that their cultural values change when they have value when they have their circumstances change and if we don't have the economic conditions that that social transition that that kind of uh, 
trend towards growing up is allowed to happen on the same trajectory at the same speed, of course you're going to see big cultural differences. But that doesn't tell you something has changed with the culture, it tells you something has changed with the economics. Mm. Yeah, thank you very much. Sophie, will you forgive me, because if, if, time is now getting tight, and I want, just want to give the members of the audience an opportunity. We've done some online questions. Uh, well, let's collect very briefly a set of interventions here from in our conference hall, and then we'll bring it to a conclusion. Yeah. Um, hello. Yeah. Uh, so my name's Dan, I'm from DLUC, and my question for you, um, so it's really encouraging findings, and the thing I'm concerned about, is it to do with the order the questions are presented? Because if you first ask uh, people, uh, how are your kids doing these days economically, and you think, oh, they're struggling, and then ask, how do you feel like these interventions that would clearly benefit them? You're kind of creating the salience or priming to get the favorable response. If you flipped it, I'm concerned how much would you get that response? And I suppose the implication of this politically is, how much does it matter if the dominant cultural conversation is all about the kind of solidarity versus the conflict? Because uh, and I'm concerned that these results you've got are real but fragile. That's what do you think about that? Yeah. Right, very good. And then there's a couple of questions here. Yeah. Thank you. Um, uh, there's fantastic report. Thank you. Really fascinating. It's Matthew from the um, from the Economist. Um, I'd, I'd be really interested to know what data do we have on how far this intergenerational solidarity is being borne out, particularly amongst low income and um, low middle class families in terms of cash transfers within mm. the family. So. You know, we talk about bank of mum and dad thinking about you know large capital transfers for people to buy houses, but actually, on a more practical level, sort of you know weekly cash transfers so that people can buy school shoes and all the rest of it. Because it, it, it seems to me there's a, there's a bit of a paradox in that, on the one hand, you know the research that there's large amounts of intergenerational solidarity might say, well, that opens up the case for um, rethinking the triple lock because people realise it's more enlightened to turn it into child benefit instead. If, it, if the reality within households is that increases in the state pension actually filter down quite quickly, mm. albeit mm. potentially less economically efficiently than child benefit, actually mm. ends up funding Christmas presents or paying gas bills or children's meals and things like that, then, then that, that strikes me as a politically more difficult <coughs> nut to crack. But I, I don't know what the data shows. Right. Do, you, do, you, do you have any to hand? Very interesting question. And then there's all the, that's there. Uh, Will Snell from the Fairness Foundation, question for Zach and Jane, going back to David's point about the cat's cradle. Uh, it feels to me that that's about proportionality and reciprocity, and that those are dynamics that exist at a societal level as well as within families. So I suppose my question is, to what extent does your research show that those that sense of solidarity exists across society and not just within the bounds of families? And, and get also, just going to call up the polling evidence. Let's see what the results are from our poll, and then give each one of our panelists an opportunity to make final observations, responding to the points that have just been made. And I hope this. <laughs> oh, look, it's housing. It is housing that people think is the most yeah. vivid example by uh, by far. And I think if I let's let's do it the other way around. Sophie, do you want to set the ball rolling? Any observations you've got? Because and of course we here at Res are trying to understand these cash transfers in more detail. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I was going to say we're, we've been really interested in, in that exact question. Um, I think the issue, a lot of the data is um, we know there's like massive underreporting of these kind of intergenerational transfers. So both like inheritance and, and, and um, gifts and kind of wealth transfers um, between generations. So it's very difficult to kind of really get under like what's going on there. Um, and I think people often don't 
um, see the things that they do as like a kind of intergenerational like cash transfer often um, so like buying I don't know as your, your example like buying shoes that it wouldn't even like necessarily register as as something that they were doing um, but it is a it's a kind of a really important question and when we did some um, uh, we did a cost of living survey earlier in the year um, we did ask a lot about, you know, what was happening um, with both financial and also kind of other non-financial forms of intergenerational support and how important they are in how people are kind of getting through the cost of living crisis. And, and there was definitely some like evidence that kind of suggested that those those mechanisms um, were were picking up in, in response to, to the kind of financial strains that um, everyone was experiencing as a result of the cost of living crisis. Yeah. Um, so that was probably the main Yeah, because there are, we, we do know that there are more young people living at home and then we have shown that that growth is particularly amongst low-income people and that could well be a form of intergenerational financial exchange. You don't have a separate heating bill, you share the one heating bill and probably the parents still pay. The only, the really dramatic natural experiment was when East Germany unified and there was a big increase in the value of the East German pension, most of which was then transferred to younger mm. East Germans. Yeah. I mean, even more so on the living with parents thing, that people do it as a way of kind of saving up that yep. deposit to like buy a house. So it is a massive, just it direct is. financial transfer that very few people would consider as such. Rachel, I just want to comment quickly on, on the poll, uh, the results of that. I would also have put housing top, but I think for this conversation, it's particularly interesting to talk about childcare because childcare, I think, is one area where there should be, and I, I don't have a data on this, but there should be more growing consensus among the generations because older people want grandchildren. And you know, anecdotally, uh, anyone my age, particularly any woman my age, will have had that conversation with older relatives uh, where you try and point out some of the financial pressures and the, suddenly it kind of clicks that what's happening in the wider economy might have a direct effect on their life and the amount of time they would get to spend with said grandchildren and there's also obviously the, the productivity argument as well which we haven't really gone into but if you make it easier for parents to work then you make it easier for productivity and, and growth and you know the people working to fund these pensions actually have an easier time of it and that's why I think that of those issues on your list childcare is the one that has the consensus between Labour and the Conservatives. Labour were about to put out this big landmark flagship childcare policy and Jeremy Hunt beat them to it. Now there's some debate among my circles of, of whether that childcare provision will ever actually materialise and there are huge questions about funding and, and access and all kinds of things but the fact that both parties agree that that is really important it's not even seen as an intergenerational issue it's seen as a core productivity issue uh, I think that's really one to watch very interesting thank you Jane thank you very much um, it's a re really interesting question about cash transfers um, from my perspective as well um, the biggest one is of course inheriting your parents home and and there I would just point out that, you know, we can't rely on these as kind of ways of filtering down because they're just so unequal and so unfair and so so very much dominated in the south and the southeast and the southwest and London in the country. So if we were going to say, well, it's all, I mean, I know you're not saying this, but if we're going to say it's all fine because pensioners are going to, you know, triple, the, it's all going to trickle down, it's going to trickle down very unevenly. And, um, and too late for most people and, as well. And too late for most people. So one of the interesting things that we're able to do is look across the age distribution and this 
comes to your question too about survey ordering, this wasn't a survey just saying, right, now just think about your kids. Yeah. It was also think about yourself, think about your older relatives, think about all of these different, you know, we want you to tell us about all these different things as well. Um, so perhaps that's kind of goes one way to sort of, you know, allaying fears about, you know, we're just saying, right, now, now think about your sort of warm, fuzzy things, and now we're going to ask you a load of questions about it. Um, but but the, the key thing is that we're able to look at also the sandwich generation, these people that have squeezed on both sides and they've got to help older relatives mm. and younger relatives. So clearly there's just this huge amount of unfairness and heterogeneity and obviously we all know that. Yeah, I'll just say very quickly on the priming point, it's a very good question. Um, I can't recall the exact order of the question, though I would um, point out what Jane just said, I think is very true. There has been sporadic YouGov polling on this issue of house building specifically though, and they do find similar results, that actually a lot more older people when you ask them do want more house building. So there is some sort of external validity to our survey. I just want to make one more point which I think responds to something earlier on. I don't want to make it seem like we are being, uh, we are trying to set you up as a straw man, Rachel, because <laughs> we do really enjoy your reporting and I don't want to dismiss uh, the uh, replies that you get on Twitter, and I'm sure David as well, uh, and the below-the-line comments where they're sort of disgusted of Tunbridge Wells commentators. There, we don't want to say there is no... It's not like these sentiments amongst older people do not exist. In our report, we also asked, you know, do you think you had it easier than young people do today? And many people did not like... <laughs> many older people did not like that question and were like, no, no, we had it harder. But what we would point out is these sentiments coexist the sort of scepticism towards the young in general coexists when you ask about specific policies with high support for things like childcare, education, and housing. One very final thing that I want to point out is we did an, we asked people an open-ended question. What are the first few things that come into your head when you think about people in their 20s and 30s? And yes, the, one of the top three answers, one of the top three most common responses, woke, entitled. These sentiments do exist. But then when you look at the fourth and fifth most common response, you also get stuff like struggling, screwed, unable to afford housing. These sentiments can coexist when you think about the group in general and you might resist the idea that they, you had it easier than they did and that's sort of seeming to minimise your struggles as an older adult. But that doesn't necessarily carry over to total selfishness and desire to want to spend money on yourself. One very, I was looking for the exact quote. My favourite quote we had to the answer to this response was a, I think a 69-year-old woman from Yorkshire whose first few things when she thought that older people were, were younger people were, Unlucky, can't get on the housing ladder, not getting enough support, snowflakes. <laughs> so these say you can, it's not either or, these sentiments can coexist. With one of the words avocado. <laughs> um, and in, uh, in, in the Resolution Foundation's remorseless pursuit of evidence, we did actually um, commission some research on consumption patterns amongst mm. young people and old people to find out who was indeed going out to eat uh, more. And it did in reveal that it was people in their 50s and 60s where the biggest surge ah. in overseas travel and uh, eating out had occurred. And I have to say, um, because Rachel and I have both been described from time to time as generational warriors, first of all, I think it's really encouraging that this research shows what we suspected all along, that there is genuine care across the generations and that young people care about old and vice versa. I think one of the problems is that as soon as you start saying, hang on, but it's tough for young people, and have we exactly what is the balance of spending, given that there's a, there are finite resources, 
that debate is suppressed if you're immediately accused of being a generational warrior. You know, it was like in the referendum, if you started raising economic effects about Brexit, you were told it was project fear. So if you raise some of these issues, you're told you're a generational warrior. You're not a generational warrior, you're just trying to make sure that society remains equitable in the support we offer to different generations. And this research today has shown how that is a widely spread belief. It's a framing issue, I would agree. Thank you all very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks for our panelists. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.